0: I would say in three years from now, three years from today, there will be legislation on the table within the federal government to mandate mileage based tax. Um, it's going to matter. So, if we can maintain this uniform approach, uh, I can guarantee you that it'll just be a replacement for fuel use tax and it won't be too. If we can't do that, it's because your buddies and, and the small carriers don't take a interest in it now when they still have a voice. Uh, If we can't bring these 58 different jurisdictions together, then you are going to end up with supplemental taxes, just like Connecticut. We don't want that. That's what we're fighting for, fighting very hard for it. Uh, And so that is the exact point that, yes, your people, the people that you talk to, they can go to their Congress. They can go to their legislators and say, look, don't let this happen. You know, we we don't want to go back to the days before we have to stop having a supplemental highway use tax it has to be part of the if agreement they can they can lobby their legislators
1: Welcome again to Trucking with Pro Miles featuring Tony Stronchak. Today Tony we go to part 2 of very enlightening conversation with Carmen and Rick from the International Fuel Tax Association was interesting uh, hearing their perspective about IFTA and reminiscing back to the early days before IFTA and since IFTA. And we heard a lot of very positive comments, both within our uh, discussion as well as some quotes from the outside about really how unique IFTA is, Tony, in terms of how they're perceived as being perhaps the most efficient Um, in the government industry in terms of managing, administering a program.
2: And Steven, I would agree. And I think that uh, every time we talk to Rick and Carmen, we learn something new. And I don't think there's anybody out there that can speak to IFTA as well as the two of them. I also feel that there's no way that this future of tax collection can happen without
1: IFTA. And perhaps most importantly to our audience, we began in part one to delve into the elephant in the room and that is the transition from fossil fuel to electric to hydrogen i.e the transition from fuel tax collection to one day perhaps mileage tax collection we defined a lot of parameters some of the definitions some of the nuts and bolts but what's really going to be interesting tony for our listeners in this second podcast is now we're going to hear from the experts rick and carmen what is going to transpire over the next couple of years? And more importantly, what should the trucking industry, the the truck driver, the owner of the trucking company, what steps should they be taking over the next couple of years to make the transition as smooth as possible for them? To see the future without running into a wall is the key. Let's take a listen to Carmen and Rick from IFTA. All right. Here we go. We are rolling. So, Carmen, what's really driving this from a commercial perspective?
0: Yeah, great question. I know we've talked about some of it. You know, uh, we go back to the, the gap between the revenue that comes in for fuel use tax versus the cost of infrastructure. But especially on the commercial side, there's a lot of other things that are driving the push towards a replacement of fuel use tax. Um, regulation. So California is in the lead there. I'm sure you've heard about their executive order. Uh, that really takes place, you know, starting in 2035, 2035, you will not be able to buy a car in California unless it's electric. Why do you care about passenger vehicles when we're talking about commercial? Because once that happens, that means taxes are going to come out of the pump in California. If they come out of the pump then that affects commercial too so whatever transition they do for passenger vehicles it has to happen for commercial vehicles too and as you know the federal government is looking at regulation once that national group is done and uh, submits a final report that is exactly what's going to happen the federal government will start to mandate um that we have that we transition to a mileage based tax no question about it California's executive order is being followed by 17 other jurisdictions. They all have legislation and very similar to that to make that same requirement. So that's helped driving it. Um, Believe it or not, mandates, internal mandates. We could talk about it. You've seen, you know, Rick mentioned this before you see the commercials. So General Motors, Ford, Toyota, almost every manufacturer has internal mandates that pretty much by 2030, They have made the commitment. The only thing they will produce is electric vehicles. So again, yes, that's passenger, but once that happens, once the majority of the vehicles on the road become electric for passengers, the taxes have to come out of the pump. So that affects the commercial aspect of it too. So that's helped driving it. Um, Customer demand, customers want this. Commercial customers, carriers want this. I could tell you stories about PepsiCo, for example. They have their own internal mandates. FedEx has their own internal mandates. PepsiCo, a huge carrier, huge number of vehicles. They have already made the commitment that by 2030, 100% of their global operations has to be zero carbon emissions. And that means either electric or hydrogen. So customers want it. Um, they have to comply with certain requirements within the SEC now to become zero carbon emissions. So they want it. They're making this a mandate. They're help driving this too. Something called the Paris Agreement, which you haven't heard of, which you may not have heard of before. This is help driving it. There's 196 nations that sign on to this Paris Agreement. And basically what it says is... and. It, it, it's just enforceable by law. This is not just agreement that people sign. It is enforceable by law. I think it, I might be off on the date a little bit, but I think it's by 2040. Uh, every one of these nations that signed on to it have to reduce their carbon emissions by 85 or 90%. And the only way to get there is to get rid of fossil fuel vehicles. So that's helped driving it. Incentives. We've already talked a little bit about it, but the federal government has huge incentives, not only for passengers, you'll get a credit if you buy an electric car, there's huge incentives for uh, commercial businesses, there's huge incentives to jurisdictions to create the infrastructure in place so we can do this. So incentives are help driving it. So a lot of different things, it's not just one thing, but all of these things are the trifecta That means, you know, we have a a short period of time. It is going to happen. Steven, you're
2: muted. Yeah, Steve, you're on mute. Dollar in the jar, my friend. Dollar in the jar.
1: I wasn't listening. I wasn't (laughs) listening to my producer. Shame on me. Rick and Tony, let's spend our remaining time drilling down into the trucking industry, the impact there. And Rick, I want to start with you. Is, as I've read, a likely first Dip the toe in the water. Transition one day to the topic we're talking about. Likely more for the shorter runs. Uh, those trucks that can go to and from headquarters, corporate office in one day.
3: Yeah, I think I think what you're going to see, Stephen, and, and, and we're already starting to see it that um, there's a there is a finite range for a commercial, a larger commercial motor vehicle to be able to drive, that kind of translates to what we used to call back in the day, the little pedal runs. So the little pickup and delivery runs, the shorter type hauls, maybe, you know, terminal to terminal between two contiguous jurisdictions. Um, the, the prototypical coast to coast type vehicle is not really there yet. It's, it's not really practical, but that's coming too. And, you know, as Carmen alluded to, um, you know, electricity is not the only, if I'll put the word in quotes, fuel that is being contemplated. Hydrogen is something that could get those class eight vehicles um, to get away from diesel a lot more quickly. And, and that is really what, Many people are talking about for the much larger vehicles, but I would agree. I think this is going to start with smaller vehicles. We've already seen, you know, companies as as Carmen mentioned, you know, PepsiCo and Amazon and UPS and the United States Postal Service. They're all on board with with introducing and you know internal mandates, as Carmen said, uh, to have. Uh, zero emissions vehicles implemented across the board certainly within the next half decade or so so you know i think i think what you're going to see is this is going to start to take off rather quickly over the next three to five years you know we've talked about legislation um Every one of us has been involved with the government one way or another. The government doesn't move that quickly. That's why we're being proactive right now. Because if we're not proactive right now, as Carmen said, this is going to catch up and surpass us. And none of us are going to know what to do and we won't be able to get it done as quickly as, you know, as we should, given the, the time we have now to start contemplating what do we need to do when do we need to do it and how do we get there
0: if i could just add tony to so you've been in the truck sir yep rick mm-hmm. some really good points just real Go quick ahead. um I, I don't want to lose sight that these are really two separate issues in other words if your question is what's going to be the progression of electric vehicles on the road rick's exactly right it'll start more profoundly with you know the 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 vehicles, the heavyweight vehicles that are less than a class eight, no question about it. That is gonna happen first because that long range isn't there yet. Although Tesla just delivered their five vehicles five years late to PepsiCo, which are long range vehicles. And we'll see how that goes. Um, and, but hydrogen could take the place, but it's two separate issues. In other words, if if the issue is, when is the transition gonna take place to possibly a replacement for fuel use tax, that is a separate issue and that's gonna happen anyway. It's going to happen anyway for all the reasons we just said. And then you add to it, you know, the progression of alternative fuel vehicles, it just gives it more of a reason that that has to happen. So two separate issues. So when you're talking about a transition or replacement of fuel use tax, it's not going to matter whether you're long range, short range or a passenger vehicle, that's going to happen and it's going to happen at the same time. So why is Yeah, good?
2: I was gonna say, so if we look at this and we look at the past and we look at the future, I mean, it doesn't make sense that anybody but IFTA really manage this. The other problem I see is how is the federal government gonna collect the Fed tax that's all at all these pumps? They've got to collect this somehow and they don't do any collection of that kind of tax
0: right now. So how does that gonna work? Great question, Tony. So one of the things that we, Rick and I, convey when we go to these meetings is I think at one time when these study groups started, they were looking at the possibility that it would be the federal government that would maintain a clearinghouse. And they would allocate, they would collect the funds and then allocate it to jurisdictions. That's not going to happen. There's no jurisdiction that would sign on to that. That is not going to happen. And so what we convey is we can do it right? The, the IFTA platform already works. We perfected it over 40 years. We have a clearinghouse. We just went through uh, two different tests to show that we can do it, that that our clearinghouse, we calculated a, a hypothetical mileage-based tax for a bunch of carriers where we captured information and it works fine. Um, and so we can we can add a simple jurisdiction that would be the federal government's portion of it, right? If they sign on to it, That is how, you know, that's what I'm going to lead into. That's what I'm trying to convey. That's what I'm going to try to sell is that we can not only continue to do what we do for jurisdictions, we can collect the federal tax and then allocate it to them each month, just like we allocate it to other jurisdictions.
2: So, So I can see why the feds would be very happy with this because now they don't have to reinvent a wheel. The other thing, Carmen, is you've got different vendors that work with the state agencies today to manage this whole process for IFTA. To me, their systems as well can be modified because – and probably pretty easy because you're already asking for total miles, routes, and these things anyway. So we're already getting the data for the fuel tax. So to turn it into a mile tax, I know at least on our side, you give me a latitude, longitude, a date, time stamp, and an odometer reading. That's all I need today to produce fuel tax for somebody. So you give that on a car or another truck. The conduit and the technology is already developed. It's already built. It's already proven out. We're doing it now for several million vehicles. So if we can do it that way, I don't see, I mean, I could imagine every jurisdiction having to start from scratch going, all right, we're going to create a mile tax division. And we now have to start from bare nothing and figure out how we're going to get this done. And we got to go pick the right vendors to build the technology for my jurisdiction, integrate it. Make sure it's SOC 2 compliant, make sure that all of the rules and regulations they have to go through their legislation for is being taken care of for the solution. It seems like we could be 30 years trying to rebuild this. So I don't see anybody other than IFTA being the successful arm to manage this because I guarantee you, with those same partners that you have with IFTA, we have as well that we integrate our miles to to help them perform these audits. I guarantee you, it would not take that much to make all of our systems handle this many more vehicles. I really, I think it's the only alternative that makes sense. So why is our government spending tens of millions of dollars in these research groups just to get to that same answer? Why are we doing that? Why is the government going through those steps?
0: Yeah. Uh, great comments, Tony, and you're exactly right. If is the place for it. And, and we already, as you said, are, are they going to start from scratch and it'll take them 30 years to perfect it? Well, we already do at if that doesn't make any sense. So why is the government spending all this money? Because there, there is more complication to it when you add vehicles below 26,000 pounds, which right now do not have a reporting requirement, right? They pay at the pump and passenger vehicles. And so. I don't think there's any question the federal government recognizes the value of using our platform, using our process, maintaining that uniform approach, which is so important, that base mm-hmm. state concept. Um, but they they do want to spend some money. They want studies to go back. How are we going to do it, especially when it comes to passenger vehicles? Commercial side, I think they already know how well it works with the if to return, the IFTA process. I don't think they're too concerned about that. As you said, you know, and that's why we got together in in Denver. I mean, you guys are already experts at this. You already create these programs that jurisdictions and customers carriers can use. We just need to know what else we need to add to it. And and for that, you're going to have to think outside the box and think, Okay, it's not just twenty six thousand pound and above vehicles now. It's ten thousand and above, which will constitute commercial vehicles, according to the federal definition and add passenger vehicles. So the population is gonna be huge, but for you guys, it should be easy. You already do it, right? It's just just a matter of determining how we're gonna get that information from passenger vehicles and the small delivery vans that we don't get now. What technology are we gonna use? How are we gonna get that? And that's what the federal government wants to know. They want that final report on how that would work.
2: So Carmen, if you think of this, and what you just said is, If I've got 26,001 pounds and above, i got to deal with filing tax returns on my IFTA. What you're saying is that they're going to expand that all the way down to a 10,000 GVW, which would incorporate a huge number. I mean, we're going from 3 million vehicles out there that are regulated today to go to 10 million or more vehicles that are 10,000. That's those Sprinter vans, which, by the way, Are one of the problems that you see in places like Chicago where they've got such low you know, structures and things have to go through that these Sprinter vans or even me and you with my F-350 with a 36-foot travel trailer behind it, that height, I could hit more bridges in Illinois than any other jurisdiction. So I can see that this change, the fleets, I mean, heck, they didn't have to worry about tax those small things. Now, 10,000, that's going to take Pepsi from, let's say, 20,000 vehicles to say – Thirty or forty thousand vehicles that they're going to have to file tax on.
0: So this is a big change. Yeah, it is. In the state of California alone, they're 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 going to be adding just to their commercial population two million more taxpayers. Wow. Right. When you when you take ten thousand and above, but but let's let's talk about why. Right. Because what are we talking about right now? Those vans, those delivery vans, that ten thousand to twenty six thousand pound commercial vehicles, they pay the tax because they pay it at the pump. Most of them are not even interstate, they're intrastate. So nobody's been too concerned about them regulating, requiring any return, because we know we're getting the taxes at the pump. But now what happens when a jurisdiction moves to a mileage-based tax, right? And takes the taxes out of the pump, how are we gonna get the taxes from them? They also damage the roads like everybody else. Yeah. And so that's where that population has to grow. That's where um, you know, we need to figure out Are we going to add that to the if to return? That would be the most likely result. Mm -hmm. Just add 10,000 and above different different rates, which is something you brought up before, Tony. And that's a lot of discussion going on right now with these different study groups. Um, How many different weight classes are we going to have? Right. And the one thing that comes up time and time again is we got to make it simple. We have to make it simple for industry. Uh, And we have to get rid of some of the taxes we have now that industry has to do, right? The heavyweight tax, for example, let's build it all in to one tax per mile and then figure out the different weight classes. Obviously, an 80,000 pound vehicle does more damage. They should have a higher rate. That's just fair. But if you start saying like Connecticut did and like New York, that you need increments of 2000 pounds that return becomes much more complicated. So um, what I've been hearing is we're gonna narrow it down to maybe five weight classes and, and stick with that. But yeah, population's gonna grow, um, but you guys can handle it. I know ProMiles can handle it and I'm sure, you know, other other vendors too, uh, they just need to realize how much that population is gonna grow once this happens. Yeah, and it's, it's gonna grow a lot,
2: but it's also gonna help us better quantify who owes that tax and who should be paying it because you know in the past i was always told you know a truck gets five miles a gallon they got 150 gallon tank on the left 150 on the right so you got 300 gallons and you're getting five miles you got 1500 miles that you can travel without buying fuel so i could go over i could leave alabama never buy fuel i could go through louis through mississippi go through louisiana and possibly even get all the way through texas and never pay and never buy any fuel to pay tax. And if that MPG went from 5 to say 7 or 8 is what the average MPG now is, that means they can go that much further. That means the problem in the future is going to be even worse than it is today because if you don't go after those smaller vehicles that are making those runs, that before they had to buy fuel locally, they were going to burn it locally anyway. But if that's all going to change, man, this is going to be complicated. But if we use the history And the knowledge of how we did this and the challenges before, and we just re rethink IFTA, re-just change some things a little bit around. But I'm telling you, at least pro-mile standpoint, we could process millions and millions and millions of vehicles this way. It doesn't matter. All you do is add a few more servers, you're up and running. The challenge I think that it's really going to come to is how do you get accurate information from those devices, get it processed, and then do you require that the carrier's file just totals at the end of the month or end of the quarter. This is what we did. And then you've got a bigger problem now than you've ever had in NIFTA. You've got more trucks to audit now. Now you're going to multiply the number of trucks regulated. So now are you going to need a lot more auditors or is the GPS data out there today that's doing this that made, because I know back during COVID everybody was kind of freaked out because how can we go out and sit in that lady's table while our kids are running around, how can we be there to get this done during COVID? They couldn't. So they started finding ways and they actually found better ways to do this back at the office. So I think COVID has allowed us to jump forward 10 years and go, this is doable, this is feasible because more of those audits they did were not paper audits, it was GPS. And the technology they have now can perform that audit within hours versus weeks. So. It's going to be tougher on the auditors, but I think if we can keep the same methodology that they're used to, I think they could even learn to embrace this as well. I really do.
1: Rick, you wanted to jump in?
3: It's interesting. We're talking about you know, the traditional the qualified motor vehicle. We're talking about the smaller commercial motor vehicles. And then obviously there's the 800-pound gorilla at the back of the room, and that's passenger vehicles, which, which you know I think we've, we've talked quite a bit about. Um, you know, what I'd like to offer, and, and if, you know, for those viewing this, if we haven't wet your appetite yet, um, this probably will. Um, we have had a very proactive approach at to Inc. to look at what the future state of a tax return might look like, up to and including, because what we all have to remember, there is no light switch here. We are not going to wake up one morning and there's no more fuel tax. It's, it's just not going to work that way. It's going to be a transition. So we've already explored ways quite successfully, I might add, at how you could implement credits for fuel tax that you paid and then implement a mileage tax and have all of that flow through the declaring clearinghouse so that a taxpayer – is not treated unfairly. So in other words, two separate unique taxes they have to pay. And a jurisdiction will actually get its correct tax that they're due. So, you know, we've already kind of behind the scenes, when you talk about being proactive, have explored ways we can do this, ways we we can implement it. So, you know, the question isn't really a matter of can we, and it isn't even a question of if it's going to happen. It's just the timeline. And that timeline, there's debate on it, but it's going to happen. Well, it's going to have
2: to happen if you're telling me that by the end of the, uh, the 2020s that a lot of these manufacturers are going to quit making those uh, fossil-powered vehicles. Exactly. We have to go to this. and And if they've all internally made their own mandates – To have it done by 1230 or 2030 or 2035 you got california doing it. you got the other 17 jurisdictions that carmen mentioned it's it's coming and it's happening now and connecticut has literally led at the front to say look we're not waiting we're going to be the first one out there and and thank goodness connecticut is a small jurisdiction but there's a lot of people that go through connecticut a lot of people that live in connecticut and so connecticut basically stood, got out there and said, look, we don't know what we're doing, but you know what? We're going to try something, and here's what we're doing. And do you think that Connecticut and their thought of having a second tax return, them having to audit those people, are they looking at having to take auditors out of Connecticut to go to New York, go to Maine, go to Florida sure. to perform these audits? Because sure if they're not to. under IFTA, then they're back to the way it used to be.
3: In a world without IFTA, that's what they'd have to do. If they wanted to detect compliance, the truth of it is, and this is just my humble opinion as a resident of the state of Connecticut, Connecticut may actually be doing the motor carrier industry and constituents like us who drive cars, they may actually be doing all of us a huge favor because the model of a single state mileage tax is not appealing to anyone. Yep. Starting with the trucking industry, those who have smaller commercial motor vehicles, and those who drive passenger vehicles. You know, there's a mirror image to every situation. And the immediate thing would be, oh, that doggone Connecticut, they implemented a mileage tax. But really, the mirror image of that is the state of Connecticut may have done everybody a favor and they may have actually given birth to the acceleration of what we've been talking about yep. in this podcast. And that is moving toward a mileage-based tax and having IFTA as the model, as the instrument to do that because it is a successful model that's been tested over four decades.
2: And it lets you use both the fuel and the miles together because that's something a lot of people don't understand. So if in some of the states like Oregon, Carmen was mentioning, you you buy all this fuel in Oregon, you run these miles, but if you file your mile tax and you get it done, they say, well, show us all the fuel you bought in in Oregon we're going to credit that back so in some ways if you've got equipment and trucks that are not that great with an mpg you may benefit by going to a mile tax versus staying on a fuel tax that you're at because now you get all that tax back on the flip side if they're allowing that at a blank mpg amount because now it's an electronic vehicle well then all of a sudden you know you may be making money off of the way this change is going to happen versus costing the fleet more money. It might actually cost them less.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to add to a couple more things Tony said too, and I thought you brought up some good points. So, um, you know, when we talk about audits and, and this conversation comes up all the time. Imagine the population now with commercial vehicles that started at 10,000 pounds and possibly passenger vehicles Uh, How are jurisdictions going to audit that? Are we going to maintain the same 3% audit requirement that we have now in the IFTA agreement? All these things are going to be discussed. We created a new standing committee called the Alternative Fuel Standing Committee. That is really going to drive forward what we do and the direction we go. But I think, again, it comes back to technology. And Tony, Tony adequately said this, if we have good technology, if we're able to capture this information from either ELDs or from the OEM black box, whatever it might be, then there may be less of a need to audit, right? Because mm-hmm. that information will be harder to manipulate, harder to occur fraud. So I, I think the audit requirements going to have to go down. There's no way jurisdictions can audit 3% of this huge population. But the other thing that comes up when we talk about that is, and you kind of alluded to this, is right now those 10,000 to 26,000 pound vehicles, for example, don't have an if it's a sticker. And I don't know that anybody knows whether or not they actually go interstate or just stay intrastate. Mm-hmm. Nobody seems to care too much because if they're intrastate, they're paying the taxes at the pump. Same thing with passenger vehicles, you drive your family from New York to Florida, you may, as you, as you said, you may or may not stop in every jurisdiction to get fuel, most likely not. So even though you're contributing to the damage on the roads of, of the jurisdictions that you pass through, you're not necessarily contributing to the revenue. And so initially when I we started talking to these study groups, they weren't even thinking about that. Uh, When it came to passenger vehicles or or lower class commercial vehicles, they weren't too concerned on whether we needed to apportion that. And so I think we had to set them right. Right. And say, you do care about it. You know, you have leakage now, but the leakage you would have once you move to a mileage based tax is is going to be much huger. And those pass through little jurisdictions like Rhode Island, Delaware, Connecticut, that people can drive through and do all the time. Um, they're not going to be stopping it, you know, even if they stop at the pump, they're not going to be paying the taxes anymore. Your revenue is going to go significantly down. You need to w- be worried about apportionment. And so, again, it comes back to, listen, we already have a platform for that. We already have a process. And, and you know, the other thing I say about the IFTA platform and the clearinghouse and the process is, these study groups weren't thinking about, they were thinking about the the database. Like that's the hardest thing, the database and what technology to use. To me, that's the easy part. Mm-hmm. We already have geniuses at ProMiles and other other vendors that could do that. That's the easy part. The harder part is getting 58, maybe 60 jurisdictions together to agree. We've already done that. We already have the, that if the agreement. And so, you know, to, to recreate the wheel from this point forward would just be and crazy. You know, we, we already have it in place. We already have jurisdictions. We have a process they can vote on, agree to agreement. All we need to do is change that agreement to say it includes mileage-based tax too. And I think that
2: transition from
0: fuel tax to mile tax,
2: this is about the only way to do it because if you just go straight to a mile tax, you're still going to have a lot of vehicles out there that are on that road like me and my F-350. It's diesel and it's new. So I'm going to drive that until the wheels fall off. Well, if I'm going to do that, we can't just flip the switch because now I'm having to pay a, a tax to the boat. The other thing about the fuel tax that's going to be interesting here is, you know, what's going to happen in 2030 when there's only 20 percent of the vehicles on the road that are fossil powered? Well, those prices per gallon are going to go from four bucks, three bucks we see right now, to 10 to 15 bucks a gallon. And so, and the reason I think this is going to happen it's gonna drive the you know, the demand. The demand for that fuel is gonna go down, so the price is gonna go up. You're gonna to have to manufacture, you're still gonna have to clean it, you're still gonna to have to get it trucked to the next facility to fill in, but people are gonna spend less mm-hmm. time focused on that and more time focused on the mile tax, and so those poor folks are gonna literally be pushed out of those fossil vehicles. They are, because they will not be able to afford to take my truck hauling a dump trailer full of rock I will not be able to yeah. justify using that thing. It's going to cost me too much. And so I think it's what's going to happen is going to push the industry to must go EV. And then you you guys mentioned hydrogen. Okay. The number one problem with hydrogen is the cost. Okay. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden yeah. now we're going to, sure, you go to hydrogen. It's better for the industry. It's better for the air, better for the, the people. But at the end of the day, we're now going to take the cost we pay today and we're probably going to triple it, you know? To get the same type of performance so i don't see hydrogen being a good solution either because you still got to have it piped you could say well we can use the piping infrastructure that diesel has now and go over the same thing well can you and what's that going to cost and then are we just taking a step backwards we're still needing some type of a fuel that the earth creates that we have to manufacture to do this where if we can go to the sky we can go to solar, we can, we can put it. I've seen solar panels are putting on trailers, solar panels. They're making the hood of the truck, a solar panel. They're looking at ways to capture the sun, the wind, you know, to generate this. So it'd be very interesting to see where that ends up.
0: Well, you brought up so many good points and, and I had some counterpoints to that, uh, uh, let's go first to hydrogen, though. You're exactly right. The the cost is the prohibitive part for hydrogen right now. The advantage of hydrogen, as you mentioned, is we can use the infrastructure we have in place now. Um, but until they can bring that cost down, the total cost of ownership for carriers, it just doesn't make sense. But, you know, they say they're working on it. And again, with hydrogen fuel cells, one of the, the advantages is you could take a diesel tractor right now. And with a simple kit converted to hydrogen, simple as that. You can take the vehicles that are on the road right now, do a couple things. They put in this kit and it now becomes a fuel cell. And you can't do vehicle.
2: that with electric because you can't go take your. Can't do that you, with electric. No, <laughs> That's right. you can't. You're going to have to change the axles out, and put engines on all the wheels. I mean, that'd yeah. be a much more, uh, you know, yeah. aggressive type of change. That's why, again, they're going to push the old equipment off and just start creating all the new equipment. Being the easiest, the simplest solution, and to be honest yeah. with you, I've enjoyed my daughter having a Tesla because we don't have to worry about getting it serviced every so many thousand miles. You don't have to worry about yeah. getting the fuel, the right. the water changed out in the radiator. You don't have to worry about lubrication a lot. You just go, and so the cost yeah. of not paying fuel, not paying tax, and the service was so much cheaper. Some of her fixes. This was really cool. Do you know Tesla has a recall on a lot of the vehicles right now because you could put your finger in the window and as the window goes up, it's supposed to feel that that pushback and stop going up. Well, they're gonna fix this. You don't bring your car in. They do it over the airways. They're doing it on the computer. So the future of a lot of this maintenance and updates and everything else, it's actually gonna save the fleets a lot of money, a lot of maintenance costs in the long run. But they're gonna have to go from one vehicle to I'm guessing one and a half vehicle for every vehicle they have today because they can only go two or 300 miles. So they're gonna have to park it, unplug, undo the trailer, hook it up to another one already charged and go, or you're going to have to take your two or three hour rest right then while you're charging. So a lot of interesting things. come. I just, it's going to be a lot of work, but I know this with the right people from the American trucking association all the way to the fleets that are embracing this, and having IFTA behind the screen scenes really making this happen, this is not only doable, it's a must.
1: Speaking of uh, ATA, Carmen, did you find it interesting as I did and, and hopefully optimistic that both ATA and OIDA, I believe, recently weighed in on this issue with the feds and took a neutral position?
0: Yeah, it's funny. Like I said, uh, I mentioned before, I just gave a presentation at the ATA meeting not too long ago, and you have fractions. You have fractions of you know ATA members from certain states that are just totally against it. Don't believe it's going to happen. Believe that we can just add electric as a fuel type on the after return and, and don't have to go to a mileage based tax. But um, then you have the majority. I think honestly, I could. I think I could say that the majority of ATA members look at it. Just like we look at it and say, it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. We know there's no choice. So at least we want to say in it, which is why they're being neutral. I just talked to somebody from ATA yesterday. That's exactly their their stance on it. We know we can't stop this progression. There's too much invested in it. Um, it is going to happen. So at least we want a voice in it rather than wait. Uh, I, uh, Tony, again, brought up some good points. I just want to cover that a little bit. Um, It's funny, you know, we talked about what's driving this and like Tony's example in the Tesla passenger vehicle, uh, that is true of commercial vehicles, too. There's no, no very little maintenance association with it. They don't need oil changes. They don't need, you know, all the things that they do with a diesel vehicle right now. So when you look at total cost of ownership, the truth is the total cost of ownership of an electric commercial vehicle is cheaper than a diesel. The problem is the initial cost to buy that electric commercial Class 8 vehicle right now is pretty high, but that that is going to come down. But the demand is there. Customer, if you talk to people at PepsiCo, the CEO of PepsiCo and and FedEx and all these different organizations that are looking to replace their their vehicles that they normally do every six to eight years. Um, they want them they have orders in they're just waiting for them right the, the supply of the batteries right now is the issue but there is a huge demand for electric vehicles not only for passenger but also for commercial me personally i just went to look at an electric vehicle a couple weeks ago i really want it it's a beautiful vehicle i love the idea of not having that maintenance i will say the cost was a little more than i thought initially but you know that's what you need to look at the total cost of owning this thing and by the way this passenger vehicle came with a 10-year warranty on both the vehicle and the battery. So when you think, you know, people, what happens if the battery dies? Most electric cars come with a warranty that will outlast the vehicle on the battery. And the same is true for commercial vehicles. Every manufacturer that I've listened to, when they sell that vehicle, comes with a lifetime warranty on the battery. So you're not going to have to worry about that battery dying. And that is, I will tell you,
2: one of the most expensive parts of an electric vehicle is the batteries. Uh, But I will also say that Tesla, along with others, have found ways to make better batteries with less of the components uh, where they can change these things out a whole lot cheaper than they have in the past. I also think that when you look at the cost, you look at, you know, again, I'm going to associate my daughter. She has a 2012 Jeep Rubicon. That's what she had before a Tesla. Well, it was costing her $400 a month or more on fuel and gas. It was costing her a couple hundred bucks every quarter for maintenance and service. Okay. And then not counting all the times you had to we had to shut it down because it was leaking oil. Couldn't figure out where the oil was leaking from. We had it in and out for those things. So if you look at the savings that she has made, that monthly note for that Tesla was cheaper than what she was paying in maintenance and fuel cost every month. And to be able to do it, I mean it's it's been trend and a lot of these vehicles like Tesla. She pre ordered it. So she gets to go not only just charge it at home for 10 bucks a month overnight, but she can literally go to any of these supercharged stations and get lifeline, char- life full of charges forever for free. So if you embrace it now and get into it now, you'll be better off because you're not paying a fuel tax or a mile tax right now. And you're getting a rebate from the government. They're making it almost impossible to say no. And yes, that price a little more now, but trust me, when you don't pay for that fuel, you know, in the next year, and you look back and go, how much money did I really save? How much maintenance? How much repair cost? I mean, next thing you know, you, it may be $2,000 to fix the engine because she had an oil leak. Well, all these things yeah. you can do away with. So electricity and electric vehicle, it's coming, like it or not, it's going to happen. And if we do not get off our butt and truly make sure we fit this better in the future, then we're going to be trillions of dollars in debt with that infrastructure and have nowhere to go. Nowhere. And that infrastructure needs help to build these power stations, to build the electronic bandwidth, to be able to charge these things. We need to invest more into figuring out how to make the paint on the vehicle collect the sun and generate back. You know, the other thing I like about these cars is as you slow down and you hit that brake, it's actually creating more energy with the force of that brake. So they are learning ways to make it better, more efficient. And I will tell you, you know, even, you know, in these trucks, some of these trucks can go 400 miles, you know, with a big enough battery bank. Yeah. So I think yep. it's coming. And I think we, as the consumer, we, as the truck and industry need to embrace it. Like we did ELD when ELD was mentioned, nobody liked it. Nobody wanted to look at it. Nobody wanted to go from paper logs to electronic logs. Nobody wanted to look over their shoulder, but all the good companies, the big companies, the ones that really care about things. They embraced it 20 years ago before ELD was, I mean, they wanted this to happen. So I feel if the industry and the consumers will embrace this change now, learn now, you're gonna benefit in the long run. And our kids, grandkids and great grandkids will have a better life on this planet if we all embrace this instead of trying to fight it. We've got the technology to to manage it, support it, and it'd be really cool. My dream's always been take that data from that ECM take it from the vehicle itself and allow the carrier just to upload all my data. Here's all my data. You want data? Here you go. And then have the system connect those dots and say, here's a bill. And I'm not going to audit you, Mr. Smith. You know why? Because I just pre audited you with the data that you submitted to me. And then at that point I would suggest that the federal government and IFTA says, Hey, if you help us with that phase, you upload your data to us. Not only does it simplify this today, but you're not going to be audited for this time frame, And why? Because you've given us everything. You gave us the right to do a pre-audit. So who's going to reopen that audit? Who's going to say, no, I don't believe this is right. It's not going to be the government knocking on your door. It's going to be the consumer knocking on the government state door going, hey, I don't believe this bill I'm getting. Now help me justify this. And it would be so much easier to do it that way versus having you hire 10,000 more auditors to go out and try to audit these guys.
1: All right. Before we morph into 16 other podcast <laughs> yep. ideas, um, let's wrap this, this, let's wrap this one up and I want to close, uh, Carmen and Rick with this. Um, and it starts with a question I got from uh, a buddy of mine who owns a medium sized specialized carrier company in the Midwest. And I told him I was going to be talking with you guys on this podcast. And he said, yeah, uh, I, I won't tell you exactly what he said, but <laughs> he said, ask this question. Carmen, you referenced earlier a few states, and I think we all realize that all 50 state legislatures have at least had conversations, some of them actually passing legislation. But his question, Carmen, is this, and and, and it's in the context of you and Rick closing this out by walking us through the next couple of years. What's going to happen behind the scenes on this issue with those wonderful ongoing studies that Tony loves um, so much? What's going to happen publicly in the state legislatures? What's going to happen in the uh, realm of uh, public debate? But to his question, as a growing number of states and a few already have pass mileage fee tax legislation, albeit voluntary or not. As time goes by, Rick, you touched on this earlier too. He's wondering how is that transition going to occur for him? Is he going to have to start paying two taxes at once? Is he going to? In other words, his point was. It's going to be so confusing for us, isn't it, Stephen, that uh, we're going to have mileage taxes going on and still paying my fuel taxes. Uh, Carmen, ease his mind, ease his burdens. How are we going to transition through that period?
0: Well, uh, he certainly has a right to be concerned, right? And that was a great question. And so how is it going to transition? What are we doing? That's exactly what we're talking about. We are going to prevent that from happening. I will tell you this even if we somehow couldn't get all jurisdictions together in this uniform approach there's no jurisdiction looking at when they go to a mileage based tax of also maintaining a fuel use tax it is going to be a replacement for fuel use tax and that's different than what Connecticut just did but the point is this that's exactly our point we we don't have much time because if you want to know how i think this transition is going to go so this national group From the federal government, yes, another study group, Tony, uh, that was allocated $50 million, by the way. The, The timeline was five years. They've now shortened that the federal government said within one year, I want you to come back with your final report. I want to know exactly how we can do it, how we can do it for both passenger vehicles and commercial vehicles. So you are talking by 2024, that report is going to have to go back to the federal government. That's what they're going to send to Congress now. Following that, there will be a phase pilot, right? They want to test it first. And so the transition is going to be, I would say, in three years from now, three years from today, there will be legislation on the table within the federal government to mandate mileage-based tax as a replacement for fuel use tax. And so what's going to happen in the background? Rick and I are going to continue to promote and change the IFTA agreement to make sure that jurisdictions follow suit, but maintain this uniform approach. So we've made baby steps, right? We just had a ballot that was passed at the uh, last annual business meeting, which changed the definition of motor fuel in the IFTA agreement. This is huge. Because uh, the way it was defined before correlated to the federal ICE-T legislation, and it only said fuel use tax, and it was very specific on what motor fuel constituted. So now the ballot passed, meaning memberships agree to this, meaning they have to comply with it. So if they need to change their statute, they need to do it. The definition of motor fuel now includes specifically electric, hydrogen, and a catch-all, anything that propels that motor vehicle. That now has to be part of the IFTA agreement. And so that helps because right now there are electric commercial vehicles on the road. Uh, they couldn't get an IFTA decal, even though they they travel interstate. So people were calling me, what do I do? I can't get an IFTA decal because this jurisdiction says, well, electric vehicle is not in the definition of motor fuel. So now it is... Now, every jurisdiction is obligated to issue if IFTA credentials and licenses to electric, hydrogen, or whatever propels that motor vehicle. Not taxed yet. We never mandate taxation. That is up to each jurisdiction. And in fact, this ballot said it won't even be included on the IFTA return as a possible fuel type until 2024. So the transition is we, this national group will be the most important group. We hope to be part of that panel. We've already wrote to the secretary administration. We're just waiting for the application. Whatever they come out with is what is the federal government is going to follow. That's the bottom line. There's a lot of other study groups out there now. This will be the most important one. That is what the federal government is going to rely on. And it specifically says it has to be for both passenger vehicles and commercial vehicles. So it's not just one or the other. Uh, so we'll see. And, and that report is due in a year. So a year from now, we are going to know the direction the federal government is 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 going to go. That's different than the jurisdictions. And so that's our job. Rick and I, that's why we're going to go out to jurisdictions. That's why we had a meeting with ProMiles and a, a few other vendors in Denver. We're going to continue those meetings because we want to go to our membership, the 58 different jurisdictions and say, here's what we should do. Here's how the agreement needs to change. Here's the technology that we're going to use. Here's the record-keeping requirements. Here's the audit requirements, all of those things. That has got to happen in the next five years. Five years is really, in my mind, going to be a critical point in time. So I think that's... Rick,
1: is- I'm going to pose the same... I'm sorry, Carmen. Nope. I'm going to pose the same question to you, Rick, with a twist on it, and that is put yourself in the position of my buddy. He owns the small to medium mid, mid Midwest trucking company. What should he and his lieutenants be thinking about right now and what should they be implementing to prepare for this transition over the next couple of years from the trucking company perspective?
3: Well, you know, Stephen, I think the first thing I would tell your friend is to talk with his, you know, and this is is outside of the internal part of, of his business model to talk with the people within his own jurisdiction's government who currently implement fuel use tax, which translates to IFTA, and, and articulate his concern that he does not want to see a return to the bad old days. The other thing that he should do is, if he is a member of their states or provinces, um, equivalent, uh, to a motor transport association, reach out to them and articulate the same concerns. Your friend has enjoyed the many benefits for however many years he's been in business that IFTA has brought to him. We talked about those right off the top here, you know, about one license, one tax return, one audit, one set of rules. Yes, there are some... State sovereignty issues like the right to set a tax rate, the right to set exemptions, um, exercising certain types of taxing authority, which is really codified in the GIFT agreement. All those principles are in there. That your friend wants that environment to remain. He does not want to return to 50 different sets of rules, 50 different types of tax returns auditors coming in from all over the place. He wants to retain that. That's that's at the the legislative level. At the internal business model level, I would encourage him to because most smaller carriers have not done this. I mean admittedly, about 20% of the industry is really 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 conversant in if the if the all things ifta are governing documents, uh, you know, how audits work, how record-keeping requirements work. If he's not conversant in that, he should become familiar with it. And and he can get to those documents. They're publicly available on our website. Um, and I'm going to leave it up to Carmen to give that website because it's a wealth of information. The other thing that he can look toward is, um, you know, give some consideration to coming to an IFTA meeting. Most of our small carriers do not do that, and there's a lot of information, great information that comes out of those meetings, whether it's our audit workshop or our uh, managers and law enforcement workshop, or even our annual business meeting, which is where all the commissioners convene, the IFTA commissioners from the 58-member jurisdictions convene. That's the legislative body. That's IFTA's Congress, if you will. So... You know, I would advise your, your, your friend to not only articulate to people within the state that he resides in, where his business is located, but to give very strong consideration to learning a lot more about IFTA because he's going to find, if he doesn't know it already, just how valuable that platform is because it is going to be the way we have taxation in the future.
1: Website, and then I'm going to pose a last question, Carmen, to you and Tony. But the website, Carmen?
0: Uh, Thank you. Yeah, the the website is iftach, so I-F-T-A-C-H dot org. And as Rick said, you'll find a lot of good information there.
1: Carmen and Tony, interesting what I heard from Rick, if I could summarize from my perspective, from my buddy's uh, perspective, and that is most of us, as we stated the onset, are realists. And we believe this is inevitable. I think most practical people agree to that. What I heard in Rick's comment, Carmen and Tony, was the trucking industry has a very unique opportunity Mm -hmm. here to either bury its head in the sand and take its lumps or get very, very proactive and make this transition as smooth and seamless as possible for the trucking industry. Correct?
0: Yeah. Great comment. So, uh, just correlating to your original question and your buddy, um, it's going to matter, right? In other words, he's concerned about having more than one tax, having fuel use tax and a separate mileage tax. And so if we can maintain this uniform approach, uh, I can guarantee you that it'll just be a replacement for fuel use tax and it won't be two. If we can't do that because we don't have this uniform approach, because your buddies and, and the small carriers don't, take a interest in it now when they still have a voice. Uh, if we can't bring these 58 different jurisdictions together, then you are going to end up with supplemental taxes just like Connecticut. So every state's going to have to do that. We don't want that. That's what we're fighting for, fighting very hard for it. Uh, and so that is the exact point that, yes, your people, the people that you talk to, just as Rick said, they can go to their Congress. They can go to their legislators and say, look, don't let this happen. You know, we, we don't want to go back to the days before IFTA stop having a supplemental highway use tax. It has to be part of the IFTA agreement. They can, they can lobby their legislators as they should. And, and in particular, we'd like to see a change to the ice legislation, the federal legislation that mandated every state comply with IFTA. If we can make one simple change to that, to have it include mileage-based tax, then everything is solved just from that one change. So we are talking to ATA, we are talking to uh, other large carriers to maybe help us support lobby Congress and the Senate to change that. But that's going to take longer. And I don't know that we have that much time.
1: Tony, final word is yours. What an enlightening discussion. Yep, it was. I enjoyed
2: it. It was. And you know, the thing that gets me is it's coming and I want to be ready. I mean, ProMiles has taken the stance of going, Well, we're going to go work with some of the consumer OEMs to go ahead and pull data from them and go ahead and test an integration uh, to show them how simple it is. The other thing that we're doing is we're reaching out to some of our big partners that are in the transportation industry. Uh, I know we're having talks with Penske and Ryder right now and and how they could help uh, through a third-party fleet-worthy. We uh, process Pepsi's uh, fuel taxes. Uh, so the goal here is to try to get these people to embrace FedEx. We do all their fuel taxes. So we believe we've got to make this buzz as loud as we can right now, get to the industry where our plans on taking what we've done with you guys today. Next, we're going to bring the ELD guys into this thing. We're going to bring in the actual service bureaus that help file these taxes because that's, that's who his buddy's going to go to. Somebody that knows the answer, I'm going to go to my service bureau. I'm going to go to the people that help me through this. And see what they suggest we do. And I think today, they all have a huge voice. But if they don't watch it, the time's going to go by, uh, law's going to pass, and they won't have the opportunity to stand up and say, I don't understand this. I've got a better idea that could make this easier. And here's my suggestion. That's why the federal government and the states today need more feedback from fleets and owner-operators than they've ever got before. And so our promise to you, Rick, and you, Carmen, is we're going to help bring this to the industry we're going to help bring this out so people understand what's happening because unless you attended the meeting in denver or you were just happened to be watching the right thing a lot of these fleets don't even know this is even coming a lot of people even people based in connecticut right now are calling us going what the heck connecticut's coming out with a mile tax is your system going to produce the report that has to be filed Well, they don't even have a report yet it is a mess and what we don't want to happen is this be multiplied times 58? Okay. Because if that happens and then a lot of money and efforts is put in one thing, what are they doing? Right now we're not even sure if we're gonna file a mild tax in Connecticut next month or not. They don't know if they're gonna put it on hold. They don't even know how they're gonna enforce it. So these concerns need to be out there. And we need to hear from those concerns. So Rick, Carman, I would love to invite you guys back as often as we can. I would like to bring in some of the fleets. Maybe get your buddy there, Stephen, on a call. And, hey, let's talk through these individually with yep. these groups. And, and our goal here at ProMiles is oh, yeah. we're going to help support this with IFTA. Uh, we're going to help support the audit pieces like we've done for IRP and IFTA all these years. And we're going to help the service bureaus, permit services, and the fleets with the technology they need now to manage this for the future. We're already coding right now as a mile tax everywhere. We're already incorporating reports today that's gonna incorporate mile tax with each one of the IFTA and do the credits back and forth based on each of those jurisdictions. And the funny thing is we'll be in the same spot each quarter where 30 days later the return needs to be filed and we still don't even have a return to look at. So this is gonna be a pain, everybody it is. However, it doesn't have to be that bad. We've already lived through this so many times. We just got to yeah. follow what we believe in, the investment of tens of millions of dollars that have been put into IFTA, that has been put into the technology, the clearinghouse, the ability to audit, the processes and procedures. All of this has been done. And I believe that re-looking at these different groups and getting these groups together to do these studies does one thing. That's revalidate why we did IFTA to begin with. That's all they're going to – every one of them's coming to the same output. And I know, Carmen and Rick, you guys have actually attended with these partners and with these third-party groups that are doing these analysis and sharing with them how this really works because when we talked to them, they had no idea how truckers did it today. They had no – they're more focused on the consumer car. Right. They're going, but well, wait a minute. We already do this. We just got to take the number from this many million to 300 million. If we can do that, then all of a sudden we've got what we need to make this happen. So, man, I am just – I. I'm excited, I'm enthusiastic about it because I want to be part of change, but good change. That's my whole life for 30 years in this I wanted to make things easier for that guy with one truck. I wanted to make it easier on the government issuing those permits, easier for the government to audit compliance of this. I couldn't believe 30 years ago how behind we were. But right now is our chance to leapfrog ahead of everything and be better prepared just like these fleets that have spent tens of millions of dollars on ELD devices. now have embraced it. They wouldn't want it any other way. And it keeps the legal guys legal. And the guys that aren't legal out there running them roads right now, this ELD will help stop and slow those people down. There will be less accidents. There will be less problems with people not awake and falling asleep. So let's embrace it. And let's keep embracing this tax because I I want to keep these roads nice. I cannot stand every spring when I go down there and my son's car, he hit a pothole and I had to replace a whole rim. That guess what? We had to foot the bill because the county says it's not our fault. You can't sue us. So we're back to we want these roads fixed. We need to pay for them. We don't want these bridges collapsing on us, you know, like they have in the past. We've got to make our infrastructure better. And if we do not help subsidize the money to do it, you give it 10 years from now and we'll be left on the side of the road. And our government will have to implement so many more tests on us that you'll be taxed to hell. You cannot go that direction. You have to and, take a step now. Correct.
1: And before before we get into Tony's bear hunting story, which is probably where he's headed no. next, <laughs> I'm gonna close this out, Carmen and Rick, with two vows to you. One is, as, as he said, this is the first of hopefully several podcasts with you folks, and we are going to deliver folks from the industry, from the government to meet with you folks on this podcast and hear all of you uh, going back and forth. And the second thing I vow to you, Carmen and Rick, is I'm gonna to bring Tony out of his shell uh for the future podcast <laughs> and get him to uh you know open up a little bit <laughs> uh, more. Yeah. But I want to close this. I want to close this the way we started podcast uh part one, and that is why I believe and Tony believes we're talking to the answer, the folks that are gonna deliver the answer right here. Leading trucking advocate um quoted this about IFTA and the two gentlemen and their fine staff that we're talking about. IFTA is one of the only things done on this planet that the government's done that they didn't screw up, that has actually worked and makes sense. That's the trucking industry talking about IFTA. We're talking to the right people here, Tony. Carmen, Rick, we thank you and we look forward to seeing you soon.
0: Thank you. I look forward to it too. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Goodbye, all